I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks, you know it's been in the news a lot over many years that beagles are unnecessarily tortured in the name of science in private laboratories. That's why we're jumping on Zoom now to speak to Phil Green to find out why signing a petition is so important. Philip Green, I'm so delighted you've joined me on A Dog's Life. Thank you. I'm good. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, Philip, you're here because uh, just over a year ago, I did a podcast with Camp Beagle, with John of Camp Beagle, uh, at the stage when the petition to stop unnecessary and very cruel vivisection taking place on beagles in an establishment in Cambridge had just been launched. And You know, I'm delighted we're chatting because you're the proud owner of Scarlet the Beagle, who is one of the few beagles to have escaped the torture. That's that's right. So um, the the site in Cambridge where the the main camp beagle protest uh, is a place called um, MBR Acres in Witton, Cambridgeshire, near Huntington. MBR stands for Marshall Bioresources. So the MBR acre site breeds about 2,000 beagles every year. They're bred purely for toxicology testing in you know, the pharmaceutical and other age, other companies. Scarletta herself is uh, an MBR beagle. She wasn't bred at that site. She was bred at the, their gigantic New York site, which breeds probably around 20,000 beagles a year. It's huge huge numbers of beagles and they all live short painful lives in toxicology labs being tested on in the most cruel way possible um we can talk about that and scientifically it's unnecessary scientifically it's very flawed there's so much better ways of doing it for better results um animal testing subverts human health and safety for so many reasons but anyway scarlet spent the first two years of her life um, in a toxicology laboratory in Hungary. Um, then towards the end of 2016, the Beagle Freedom Project rescued her along with six other beagles from that facility and brought them to the UK. So we've had Scarlet for about six and a half years. And of course, we're very much animal advocates ourselves. So Scarlet has been the face of a number of campaigns we've uh, we've supported over the last um, five to six years. Yes, I know. I've I've seen you on Twitter quite a lot, and I applaud you. So, how how did you actually get Scarlet? You know, were you involved with the the Freedom for Beagles project already, or or how did it happen? Well, Janie, my wife, um, she was signed up as a potential adopter for. Um, an ex-laboratory rescue beagle. She was signed up with the Beagle Freedom Project. We keep a close eye on them, um, the the BFP, Beagle Freedom Project. And then we learned towards the end of 2016, there'd been a rescue of beagles from Hungary that had come to the UK. So Beagle Freedom Project, it's it's an animal 
charity based out of Hollywood in um, the US. Shannon Keith is the president and founder, awesome lady. Um, she's a, an animal rights lawyer herself, uh, goes back a long way as, a, as an animal rights person. Uh, she negotiates with the laboratories, uses freedom of information requests and challenges them and tries to get beagles released from the labs. She says, look, if you've done the test, you can't use the beagles for anything more. Uh, hand them over to us. We will find a home for them. No questions asked. Um, they negotiated over some time to get these beagles released from Hungary and thank goodness that she succeeded. Otherwise, Scarlett wouldn't be alive today. She would be long gone. And Scarlett and her six siblings came to the UK in December 2016 and we adopted her um, a few weeks later. And it's very much a blind adoption because you don't know what the Beagles went through in the lab, what specific experiments were done for what purpose. Um, all you can do is make an educated guess based on their behaviours as to what happened to them. And sometimes over the years, you find little medical problems, ailments. So, for example, in the last couple of years, we discovered uh, that Scarlett has some scar tissue on her esophagus where the various pipes, you know, the, the wind oh. pipe and the, the esophagus meet. And that scar tissue would have been caused by a tube being rammed down her throat, which is a a procedure called gavage, where at a testing lab, they, they take a tube, they, they very clumsily ram it down the throat of a beagle into the stomach, and then they, they inject them with a substance, which, uh, which could be anything from a pharmaceutical cleaning product, whatever. They inject it, no pain relief, no palliative care. It's put into their stomach and they're just left there to suffer, often very painfully in silence, cold, alone in a cold metabolic cage. And that happens every day for 90 days, this procedure. It's absolutely uh, horrible. Some some beagles won't survive the procedure at all. They'll die halfway through, even if they survive the 90 days. There's a good chance that they will be euthanized and a post-mortem to see exactly what had happened, the damage to their internal organs. Liver damage is usually the first place to look at, but it's pretty horrible. But we know from the scar tissue on in, in her esophagus, her trachea, that she was subject to a gavage-type treatment where a tube was rammed down her throat mm, once no. a day, maybe twice a day for 90 days at a time. And they, that may have happened two or three times during her two years in the laboratory. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's uh, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, beyond shocking. For me, it's like a no-brainer. If you swallow some bleach, for example, you know, you know it's not going to do you much good, but that's what I've found difficult to understand with this laboratory, and I'm sure there's many others, where it's it's privately funded pharmaceutical research. So none of this research really needs to happen. It's not like it's research to perhaps save millions of human beings or something. It's it's totally to sell product. Well, absolutely. Um, several aspects here. Number one, there's a lot of public money 
millions upon millions. We don't know how much money is spent on these cruel and unnecessary animal tests because when you look at the figures quoted by the various agencies in the UK, such as you know the NC3Rs uh, and statistics the Home Office publishes every year, it's not really clear how much money is spent or the real true extent of how many animals are tested or how many times for what purpose. Um, and very often it's it's the case that these companies do these tests so that they can put a legal tick in the box and stop them getting lawsuits or to say, well, you know, we've met the regulatory requirements. But unfortunately, these tests, they're often conducted with, should we say, questionable scientific rigor. And you'll see a lot of undercover footage and whistleblower information related to that. Plus, they're completely unreliable. Um, you're right. You know, if you if you swallow bleach, you know something bad is going to happen to you. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why the heck? You know, if you if you swallow anything or put excessive amounts of shampoo in your eyes, things you shouldn't really do, you know something not good is going to happen. But worse than that is that w- when when you look at the success or failure rates of what happens when you test on an animal and then take that product to a human, um, you get 90% plus failure rate. So something that has somehow passed a test on an animal, like a drug, is then given to humans to try um, clinical trials. And then after clinical trials, it'll eventually get, if it passes clinical trials, it'll eventually get some form of approval from a regulatory authority to say, yes, you can now market that drug or whatever. Um, but there's a 92% plus failure rate. So 92% of substances that have tested successfully on animals fail to work in humans. So as well as costing goodness knows how much money, subjecting animals to the most horrific cruelty and suffering, um, it doesn't even work. Yes. And And the thing is, the law is written on the assumption that it does work. But we've now got some scientific data spanning many decades that demonstrate that animal models do not work. They cannot predict the behavior in humans. And we have technology now that can do the job far, far better, that can predict the outcome. I mean, Phil, that's where where I think, yes, you know, we're in an age now of artificial intelligence. I mean, let's not go there, (laughs) you know, now. But, you know, technology is definitely at a stage where this is unnecessary. It's clear. And clearly a beagle is not the same as a human. I mean, we, we know that because also with digestive reactions, it's useless to do it on a dog because a dog's digestive system is the biggest difference between dogs and humans. There is no comparison between a dog's digestion and a human's digestion. Absolutely. One's acidic, Absolutely. that's the dog's. One's alkaline, that's ours. One's short, that's the dog's. One's long, that's ours. Um, one produces the sugar enzyme to break things down, which could or could not have a positive or not effect to a particular pharmaceutical. Dog don't excrete that enzyme so there's nothing comparable about the the digestive system so you know that alone proves that those um, awful lavage 
pipes on little scarlet were absolutely you know pointless and you know the this is something that's been known for well over a hundred years, if not much, much longer. You could go back to the discovery of penicillin. Um, Fleming, he tested it on rabbits. Uh, but as you say, the digestive systems are very different. Rabbits assimilated it too fast for it to do anything. So penicillin in his first uh, you know, infancy was shelved. For 10 years until somebody else came along and thought, wait a minute, let's try and find another modality of tested. And then they managed to dis- they discover that actually it can work and did work very, very successfully on humans. And th- this is going back to the 1920s. And mm. we not learned anything. Well, no, and there's a statue, you know, in Battersea, isn't there, called the Little Brown Dog. To think of, I mean, back in the Victorian age, though, I suppose, you know, they were busy trying to work out the world, weren't they? You know, discoveries, there was Darwin, the the whole works was going on. We, We didn't know very much before that, really, did we? But people were beginning to explore the world and and science was beginning to become a thing before that, of course. People use homeopathy, um, but, you know, they, they want to be this quest for science. And, uh, but uh, you know, what I hate is that anaesthetic <laughs> wasn't invented till about 1930s, I don't think. They mm. they used chlorophyll, didn't they? Yeah. But, but the animals in these early experiments to work out their physiology and anatomy of humans as well as dogs, I do believe humans were cut up <laughs> quite a bit to work out, you know, where bits were well, and all the rest of it from a science perspective. That's right. And um, humans were experimented on. Um, uh, and then the Nuremberg Code came along after the Second World War. And there was the Nuremberg Code that basically said, look, we must never do this again test on humans first and that's where the whole concept of well let's test on an animal was really formalized across the world and then moving on in 1964 there was a a treaty that came out of a a a scientific group in helsinki that said that that reinforced the principle test on an animal first it it's they did say if appropriate which is a caveat that is often ignored Mm. uh and this is the sad thing it, we've we've almost like humans have chosen to believe and politicians have chosen to believe that somehow testing on an animal gives you some level of comfort uh, if you go back to say the thalid, the terrible thalidomide tragedy the outcome of that was for people to say we need more animal testing but actually no because the, the issue with thalidomide, it was it was a drug given to pregnant women, I think for morning sickness, to, 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 but it was given to them on the assumption that the fetus developing in the womb was completely impervious to things going on in the woman's body by way of the umbilical cord offering protection. That was a scientific assumption that's since been proven false. So it is possible for certain th- things to get through the umbilical cord into the fetus and this tr- particular drug cause birth defects. And even today, no amount of animal modeling can predict 
birth defects. And in, after thalidomide, scientists went back to see if they could have actually predicted uh-huh. that terrible tragedy. And they would give animals, you know, tens, hundreds of times the dose that you would ever give a human. Oh. And, and try as they might, they simply could not even after the effect, knowing that birth defects can arise, they simply could not reproduce in animal models and predict um, something like birth defects. So the animal model just doesn't work. We've got to look at new technology. We've got things called organ on our chips that some companies have been developing very successfully where you have a a small cultivation of, of human cells and it can you can cultivate liver cells, kidneys, brain cells, and it, and, it, and it is literally on a chip that's that's wired up to electronics. And some very pioneering companies uh, are doing these things. And because it's human centric, human centered science, instead of getting this horrendous failure rate, you get these fantastic success rates yes. and that's got to be the way to go let's start you know we've cured cancer in my so many thousands of times organ on a chip and other technologies will 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 have the capability for, for finding real cures faster and cheaper Yes, um, this is it. We and, and we need to adapt. It's 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 really barbaric what's going on morally, really, and financially bankrupt. I would say. Yes, it it is. Uh, we don't know how much. It's a lot of money frittered away, wasted on animal testing. And it's not just the financial issue. It's the the ethical issue. The this horrendous cruelty and suffering being done to animals, and then on top of that is the fact that human health and safety is being subverted. We do get successful drugs to market, not because of animal testing, but in spite of animal testing. Uh, you throw you throw dice and you're, you are occasionally going to get a six come up. You throw four dice, you are very, very occasionally going to get four sixes come up. That's just coincidence that as it happened on that one occasion, there, there was uh, some correlation but that's but like i say it's it's in spite of animal testing not because of animal testing mm, so mm. we we really do need to chase after the, the big wins that are out there and start finding real cures no i i, I couldn't agree more i mean i'm not a mad fan of pharmaceuticals i'll be quite honest with you you know i often treat my own animals with homeopathy and which has been a lot around centuries longer than, um, you know, conventional medicine. So um, I'm very much on that page being you know, a naturopath, a fully qualified naturopath and, you know, canine nutrition and behaviour expert, basically. Um, and by the way, by the way, we we follow that with Scarlett because we don't know what Scarlett had pumped into her in the toxicology lab. So we take the view that... Um, treatment she has must be as natural as possible and we actually utilize a very specialist uh, vet uh, in in Hertfordshire that uh, decades and decades of experience. I know who he is. Yes. Is that Richard Allport? That's him. Yeah so so we we (laughs) he's been my vet he's been my vet for donkey's years actually and I I now use Barbara Jones actually in Shropshire because I spent a year in Shropshire helping my mom and uh, um, Barbara is actually totally integrative. So if mm. you do need a blood test, because I would imagine Scarlett 
needs annual blood tests, really, you know, blood works just to see how all her organs are doing? We, well, when she first came out of the lab, we did, we thought we, we do need to understand what condition her organs are in. So we did take her to the vet once to get some blood works done. And thankfully, the results came back that her major organs were all functioning intact. No obvious uh, long-term damage. Uh, but I tell you one thing, you know, she she reacted you know, very, very strongly when the vet tried to take blood. I know all animals have a tendency to do that, but Scarlett especially, it was almost as if she was saying, I'm out of the lab. You're not, I'm not doing this for you. So she, she fought it very, very hard. But yeah, thankfully the results came back good. We only take her to the vet, a traditional vet, when we absolutely need to. So for example, recently we, we, we realized that some of her teeth were not in the best condition. And that's that's another common pattern with ex-laboratory beagles because they're not in a natural environment. They don't get to eat and chew normal things and have chew on sticks and, and, and very diet. Their teeth are often in not the best conditions when they come out of the lab. Scarlet was no exception. So we do keep a close eye on how on her dental hygiene and uh Unfortunately, if she does need to have a tooth out, she had a couple out a few weeks ago, sadly. Oh. Um, we, we did. She did have to go under the anaesthetic. It, it it just had to be done, unfortunately. But we avoid any form of pharmaceuticals um, <laughs> as much as we possibly no, can. No, brilliant. And, and you know, you can, I, I feel that at last, I mean, I know a number of traditionally trained vet nurses, for example, are all doing courses like the course I did, but I did mine back in 2012 because there, there is so much more out there that can be optimised for dogs that do have sensitivities. For example, actually, I've recently uh, tracked down the herb, actually, that insulin is made from. Won't go into massive detail, but uh, yes, that brought, brought um, in this animal's case, the blood sugars right down where, interestingly, insulin failed to touch it. So that is, that is, that is very interesting. Actually. I know, That's I know, because, of course, yes, insulin can actually give you diabetes you know yeah, there's this massive yeah. irony and it's it's also ridiculously expensive and extremely wow. toxic this, yeah no this... it's with my cat actually it's really quite sad who passed and it appears that he actually got close to a pesticide um that uh is known to is it's called oxyphosphorus which um can in some cases create hyperglycemic effects as part of its uh, poisoning. And unless yes. diagnosed as that rather than diabetes, um, if you treat for diabetes, it's just a fast road to uh, death, which um, unfortunately it was. Um, so, yeah, interesting, very, very interesting for me that. But we didn't have time sadly, to save Bremlin. So no, gutted, beyond gutted, but it's got to yeah. do with a huge fox population now in London, beyond belief. And, uh, you know, the council won't help you, you know, rid your garden of a fox den. Not that I've got one in my garden, but I've got one next door. And uh, so, you know, you have to pay for experts to come out. And of course, the message is, you know, for experts, don't use toxic substances. Of course, we do everything humanely. 
but that's expensive and currently people don't have that extra budget so opt for you know cheap and horrid so yeah so yeah very sad very very terribly sad but you know and I think Scarlett's done so well to rally I mean hopefully see she got out of there in time because dogs start to age at the age of two so you've she kind of was lucky to get into the right hands at a time when I think, you know, it could have gone either way. And you've obviously, I know Richard very well, as I said, so it's brilliant. So it is interesting, isn't it, to see how you can fix things without pharmaceuticals, don't you think, Phil? Absolutely. And it's like you say, these homeopathic cures, um, many of them have been around far, far longer than pharmaceutical cures. Um, and herbs, you know. And, and they... What- they Many do work, and Scarlet's homeopathic treatment does work. We know for a fact it does work, and we we tweak it and adjust it, and we see how she gets on with it. Uh, we got into a good routine with it, but but it does work. Yeah, no, it's brilliant, really brilliant. How funny. I didn't know we'd be talking about that in the podcast, <laughs> but I love it. I love it. So, yeah, so Scarlett, I mean, what would you say to somebody, you know, wanting to adopt uh, a beagle like Scarlett? It's it's like adopting any rescue animal. Um, you've got to be patient. I think there's the rule of three. You know, it, it takes it takes the first three days you have a a, a dog for, for them to just have an initial decompression. It takes a week. Uh, it takes three, uh, three weeks for them to start to learn your routine and then three months for them to really feel part of your home. You, you just have to be patient. Uh, and with any dog, learn about the breed. Uh, beagles can make wonderful they are wonderful loving gentle (laughs) they're brilliant dogs i've got friends in kensal rise that um i knew they're two beagles my word the stories were just brilliant they were so mad that you simply couldn't make them up charlie Mm. was um a working strain beagle so you know he would have been a pack of beagles going out on on a hunt you know um because of course they are uh, olfactory dogs they're scent mm. hounds rather than you know as you know a greyhound being a sight hound and yes yeah. you know choosing the right dog for your lifestyle they're extremely difficult to train in my experience and they're just natural get up to mischief monkeys <laughs> yes uh interestingly with scarlet um even though she w- was never fully nurtured and raised by her natural mum, she never, she never lived a normal dog's life for the first two years of her life. Um, so, in some ways, she's had to teach herself how to be um, a dog, uh, like you would in the same way as a, any other pet dog would be. She has a ferocious hunting instinct. Some beagles. They're a bit sort of be meh with their hunting instinct. They're not really concerned. Scarlet, her her nose is as keen as it gets. She she is a real true scent hound, um, and we tried her off lead when we initially got her. But of course, you know we live near a natural forest, full of deer, lots of forest foxes, and she would just chase them if she got a sight or smell of them um 
is you know we 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 had we came to the conclusion that we we couldn't allow a complete freedom in the forest. It's just too tempting in the forest. Hmm. So we keep her on a very very long thirty foot trailing lead that gives her some freedom. It's only at places like the beach where there's no foxes or deer around. Yeah. That we can truly let her off lead. But yes, the beagles can make wonderful wonderful. Uh, family pets and and to get an ex laboratory beagle, we can honestly say is is an honor and a privilege to be able to adopt one because the the, the love you get from them when you start helping them and you teach them how to be a dog and you you find you get so much back from them they're just wonderful. Oh no, I I I can believe it. Absolutely can believe it to be honest. And yes, but it's a very important point you made uh to choose the right breed for you. Um the time you have, the lifestyle, the experience of dogs. You've obviously had dogs before, I can tell. Um so you've been able to help Scarlett really proactively and, you know, your location with the forest, I mean, sounds really, really wonderful for her. So, but not everyone can offer that. And I think you, when you're taking on any dog into your life, you really have to be honest, you know, don't you? You do. And dogs, uh, there are, you've got, as Ricky Gervais said, you've got 15 years of joy you know, give or take, uh, when you have a dog. And there's responsibilities. The phrase is it's not just for Christmas, it's for life. Uh, you do have to walk a dog. You should walk a dog at least twice a day, maybe three times a day. Scarlet at times will have three walks, a very early morning walk just to get her ablutions going. Um, then she'll have a, a midday walk and then maybe a, a late evening walk just to settle her. For the night, I'm not saying, you know, as we should do for every dog, every dog is different. Every family has their own specific routine. But you you do have to consider the dog's needs. The, the walk is for them. The walk is about the dog. It's not about you. So do it for the dog. Oh, Phil, I agree. I mean, you know. I think far too many people are using dog walkers and doggy daycare and everything. Occasionally, everybody might need that, but it's occasionally. It's not every day. So uh, it's something I'm I'm really big on. I know my my producer listening in right now will be will be, will be giggling. His shoulders will be going up and down. I think. No, you're so right, but. But there is this petition, isn't there, that has to be signed, right? It has to get enough signatures. It's doing very well, but we need to push it out, right, Phil? Yes. So uh, there's been uh, a few petitions over the last couple of years. Uh, and by getting by getting the, the number of signatures on the petition to over 100,000 means that it is very likely going to be debated in Parliament. Yeah. And every time these things come up for debate in Parliament, it reminds the government, it reminds the Home Office, um, which is the, you know, the, the, the government body that, that oversees the test of, testing of animals in laboratories uh, because it comes under the Home Office, not DEFRA for some reason. Um it's a reminder to them that, look, the British public do care about animal welfare. We do want to see change. We know that testing on animals is not just ethically wrong, it's scientifically 
flawed, does not work, and we must invest much more in non-animal methods. So get in these petitions, debated in Parliament, get in those signatures over 100,000 so we can get these debated in Parliament. It's so important to keep the pressure up on on not just the government, actually, all parties, but yeah. for them to be reminded that, look, this is what the British public are telling you, and it's not going to, the message is not going to go away. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it's like we have a duty of care. And also, I mean, I would say, I mean, can't you sue these people under the Animal Welfare Act or am I being a bit naive? <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. Uh, laboratory animals are not protected by the same welfare laws that govern uh, any other animal. So Scarlet as a beagle can sit outside Camp Beagle as one of the most protected species in this country. The moment she enters those gates of NBR acres, or the moment she enters the gates of a testing laboratory, that protection is gone. And and quite honestly, there is no such thing as an illegal experiment, really. Why not? They because because it's deemed, you know, the Home Office deems animal testing as a necessary evil well it's just evil it's not necessary so they will sign off tests on animals every test that's done on an animal must be must be signed off by the home office and they're given a license to do animal tests so the home office the part of the home office that governs this is the the animals and science regulatory unit and they sign off these licenses and the law has written says that, look, you don't test on an animal if there is a non-animal method available. But that, but the ASRU are still signing off animal tests when right. there is oh. an approved non-animal method on file because they're not, they're, they're actually breaking the law. The ASRU are breaking the law as written. By signing off these project licenses, they're just rubber stamping them. They're not doing enough due diligence uh, to critique them and verify and check that there are non non animal methods available. We don't know the exact figure, but there are sources that claim that if the ASRU, if the government was properly following the laws written, we could wipe out around about 90% thereabouts of the tests that we do on animals in the UK because there's non-animal methods available. Yeah. So yeah. that's a, that is just that's just disgraceful. That's just It's mind-blowing. It's it's horrendous. It's bad enough that the law presumes that animal testing works that it doesn't, but to actually completely disregard that part of the law that says if there's an if uh, I don't like the word alternative, but if there's an and I'll explain why in a minute. If there's an alternative to an animal test, you must use that, not the animal test. They're ignoring that. By the way, the reason I don't like the word alternative, saying you know there is an alternative to an animal test, that assumes the animal test works, which it doesn't. So <laughs> alternative is not the best word. I know that's split in hairs, being pedantic. But even by following the laws written, if it were done properly, if the Home Office of and the ASOU were actually doing the job they're paid to do, um, we could eliminate a lot of tests that are done on animals. So all these petitions are are, are centred around, look, 
Let's give the animals the protection so they're not subject to unnecessary cruelty. Let's invest in non-animal methods. Uh, let's hold these institutions and the government accountable. Yes, yes. And do we really need a million different headache pills? <laughs> well, exactly. exactly. I, there is a saying about the pharmaceutical industry that uh, a patient cured is a customer lost. And unfortunately, <laughs> that that's what it comes down to in that you're being sold a treatment. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people, they'll say, go to a doctor expecting a pill. Uh, as as the as the fix, yeah, never conditioned, aren't we, to take pills? We, we are conditioned, so and and we're conditioned to believe that it's like an on-off switch. You take the pill, it works. You stop taking the pill, it doesn't work. It's really not that simple because you can. There are cases where you can give exactly the same treatment to identical twins. So two people that are genetically one hundred percent the same, and they will react differently to the same mm. treatment. So the old model of the basis of a one-size-fits-all even is something we need to move away from. There's better options available. Yes, and you I know, think as well, hopefully, I mean, can the pressure on, from the planet influence this a bit, Phil, as well? In that, you know, all pharmaceuticals are produced with heat, great heat. So they're burning electricity and emitting dunk into the air you know in their processing technique you know if you eliminated that it's never really discussed this but you know for lots of obvious reasons I think but I think I, I've asked a few people how much do you think the pharmaceutical industry alone contributes to global warming no one actually knows the answer funnily enough but I I'm guessing quite a lot actually so you know there's that aspect well if you look at, say, the, t the use of beagles in a testing laboratory, uh, you, you've got you've got the, the breeding of the beagle. When you look at where they're bred, you've got metabolic cages, all of the equipment, the lab equipment, uh, even what even what animals are fed in laboratories is is a very almost clinical process. They're obviously fed something that's as cheap as possible that keeps them barely alive just, but no more. They certainly don't, they're certainly not in a nurtured environment where they, they're able, to, they're either fed or given the opportunity to grow any significant muscle mass. But this whole industry, the whole ecosystem around animal testing is huge. And you've got any number of industries coming together that, that make that. And what that footprint looks like e ecologically is anyone's guess. It is probably huge. Uh, whereas, you know, let's move away from non-animal methods. Let's look at human-centric methods. Stop wasting vast amounts of money and resources and planetary resources on something that just does not work and is inefficient. So common sense would tell you if you move to a, a modern method, you are very likely to get a, a much better environmental footprint you're actually producing something delivering a methodology the works yeah no definitely just out of interest um what are the the figures you see my guess would be that it's america and the uk that does the most vivisection am i right or am i wrong it's 
America is probably the number one because whereas if, if you if you look at the UK statistics, the figures published by the Home Office, which is the figures they choose the public, and by the way, British law, there's something called the Animals Animals in Scientific Procedures Act, the ASPA, 1986. Uh, Section 24 has this is is a secrecy clause, which basically literally shrouds the vivisection industry in this country in a veil of secrecy. So any freedom of information request you get, you submit, it's likely to come back very heavily redacted. It's it's unheard of. When when the ruling party that we have, before they came to power, they actually put, I think, in their manifesto a commitment to abolishing that secrecy clause. They They never have. Uh, even if they abolish the clause and we started to get real transparency and we didn't get redacted information from the Home Office, we might actually start to get an idea of how the scale of this, how much money and the scale of the unnecessary cost and suffering. But going back to the UK, there's roughly two and a half thousand animals, dogs especially, you know, in, 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 there's many more animals incarcerated, but I think this country uses about two and a half thousand dogs per year in science. You go to the US, the US has probably over 70,000 beagles. Wow. Incarcerated yeah. Yeah. In the yeah. So they are probably the biggest, but it happens right across the world, many countries in the world. If you look at the, um, if you look at the rescues Beagle Freedom Project have done um, in the last decade, They've been they we've been they've been getting rescues from as far afield as South Korea, for example. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Garlic was rescued from Hungary, so th- th- this does happen pretty much in in most maybe all developed countries. Yes, yes. I you know I mean oh gosh we're we're using a lot of time here and I I want to get the main message across that people have got to sign this petition really yes, so absolutely. Phil what what is the petition you know where can people sign it um we're obviously going to have the link big in the show notes so everyone listening now go to the show notes and please sign this so but you've got websites I know Scarlett's very prominent on Twitter I think isn't she Phil Scarlett's got social media. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Uh, she's on Twitter. We're going to look to getting her live on TikTok oh, as well. Wow. But, but, but yes, yes. So Scarlett's got her own social media that reflects not just her life as a beautiful uh, beagle, um, but her campaigning. Um, Camp Beagle, uh, have a large presence on social media. So the main Camp Beagle Facebook page, um, they have a website, thecampbeagle.com. Social media and the website will give you more information on the petition and links to it where you can look at the petition and sign it. Uh, And the current petition is really focused on regulatory toxicity. There's this notion that's... that's, uh, it's actually it's not actually law it's generally accepted practice to test any new uh, drug on two species a, a canine and a non-canine typically uh, a rodent and and the sad thing is is that the you know the the canine test only 
contributes at the very, very most to as little as 2% in terms of probability of safety, which is absolutely negligible. So the petition focuses very much on uh, the the regulatory toxicity, the two species, uh, and the need for for change. And my, my view is that, look, even if you don't 100% agree with maybe the wording of the petition or there's some aspect of it you may have a slightly different opinion on. The main thing is sign these petitions because it gets the debate in Parliament. It raises awareness. It puts the MPs and the Home Office under pressure to debate these things. It gets it in the public eye. So please do sign these petitions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm sure... Our listeners will be signing the petition. I've signed the petition. Um, you know, that's that's done. Um, and yeah, let's hope for change. Um, it's a, it's a very murky business, that's for sure. And it needs to be, you know, exposed a bit more and changed. But Phil, change listen, let's coming. change is coming. It can only yes. come. That's the thing, well, you know. The US, the, the FDA Modernization Act, which was signed into law in the US um in December from the US perspective, strikes off the mandatory testing of new drugs on animals. Well, that's brilliant. The, the, U, the US is leading the way. Good, Rishi, good. Rishi Sunak and the government said they want to be leaders in technology. Well, it starts here. Yes. Well, let's not go into politics right now. I think <laughs> yeah. we'll we'll be here for, uh, all day, Phil, you know, because we think on the same page. So, yes. look, oh, I do hope Scarlett gets better from her cruciate injuries. And I would love to stay in touch and have an update on, on that alone and um, talk talk more about herbs and homeopathy, Phil, maybe, yes. too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Everything we do around Scarlett and her life and her care, um, we obviously look for the best solution for her. And we do look always for the most natural solutions as much as we possibly can. And in a way, Scarlett is is a campaigner. We're, We're very passionate about campaigning for change. And change is coming. You can't stop technology. It's the forward thinking brands that genuinely hand on heart say no testing on animals, whether it's makeup yes. or whatever. Yeah. And that, and that's that's more now because people will buy into that brand because that's what people actually want on the whole. I think, you know, people don't want cruelty to animals going on. Well, Phil, let's chat again and take this further. Really enjoyed our conversation. And here's to Scarlett, the trooper, the, the lucky yes. The lucky one. The lucky one. We're lucky. We are so privileged to have had the opportunity to be her parents. Oh, thank you, Phil. Thank you. Well, that's our show, Mr Binks. What did you think? Yes, it does put perspective on life and it does show how lucky you've been compared to Scarlett. And you're right. It is time for Woof of the Week. It really is time to end unnecessary and torturous testing on animals. Please sign the petition in this week's show notes.
I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, give us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help. Thanks again, of course, to Phil Green for joining us today and all the links, especially to the petition, are in the show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen, my producer, for all the production and music as ever. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday. So make it easy. Subscribe. It's free. Then that way you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Bye.